Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas, ice houses blaring on the stereo, it's humid and dangerous and a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s. So this season, Dad and I are finally going to go back, back, back to the year 1980, and each week we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book, and Dad will tell us the story behind my version of events. It'll be thrilling, revelatory, and as always, very, very loose. Welcome to Loose Units Origins. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins, the weekly podcast where I, Paul Verhoeven, chat with my dad, John Verhoeven, about his time being a cop in the 1980s. Dad, I think we can both agree that this week's chapter, the story we're going to be telling this week, is one of our favourites. Would you agree with that appraisal? Paul, it's I. Um, I had a glance a few minutes ago, just before we went on air. Mm-hmm. It it's it sent a wave of excitement. Was it like a sneeze, but better? It was better than a sneeze, and we all know what's better than a sneeze, which we can't mention. But it was so I was so excited that I thought the listeners today are in for a real treat. Now there, there's kind of two elements to this to this story. This chapter is a whopper, and we've been kind of waiting for this one for a while. But yeah, Dad, I think I think we should start at the beginning. Uh, this chapter is called Julian. The dice was loaded from the start, which is of course a reference to a song. But Julian has been kind of on the fringes of this book for a while. First of all, Julian is not Julian's real name, as we've established. Uh, I changed his name for you know anonymity and out of respect for the real person. But who would you say Julian was to you at this point in your life? And what did he mean to you? What kind of a person was he? Well, I um, didn't generally um, sort of socialise with police off-duty. Right. Um, but I made an exception for Julian and uh, we, we hit it off straight away and we had a mutual respect for each other mm-hmm. and we both knew we were... Super keen. We'd already decided, um, although we were fairly junior, we we were out on the road. We were working together. We knew that we were in control of, you could say, our own destiny, and we were answerable to ourselves. I mean, obviously, we had to, you know, follow the law, 
but we both knew that we were hyper vigilant and yeah. we on those occasions when we used to work together we were real we had this amazing simpatico we understood each other we um, we we took on the different roles, um, and I know this is going to sound a bit cliched, Paul, but he was um, when we were doing sort of interviews, mm. he was the the bad guy, yep, and I, and I was the good guy. And do you think that was a role he slipped into naturally? Because I mean, you've often said that you saw yourself as one of the good guys. When the time comes to sort of look at each other and go, all right, are you going to be the kind of tough guy and I'll be the kind of nice one? First of all, is that sort of Let's talk about the good cop, bad cop technique. Mm. Does it actually work? Um, does it work with everyone? And yeah, when you go into the room, do you draw straws? Or did you think that maybe Julian was sort of inclined to being a bit more aggressive than you, so he was a natural fit? He is a very compassionate person. Mm. Um, and I say is in terms of not past tense, but the present tense, even though I haven't seen him for a long time. Mm. He came from a very, very good family, uh, a very caring family. Um, you know, we were both brought up with with uh, what I would describe as, you know, fairly fundamental morals and a sense of social justice. And um, But also quite, I mean, I seem to recall his family. I mean, we spent a fair bit of time there, mm. uh, but he, we referred to him as uncle. I mean, mm. he was, you know, Uncle Julian. So I think... I would say his family had some stuff in common with the Verhovens in that they were kind of eccentric, like mm. kind-hearted eccentrics. Would you agree with that appraisal? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. But look, I used to spend a lot of time um, off duty at his at his family's house and and we used to do a lot of diving together, scuba diving uh, mm. with another guy, Dave. And um, You skydived together as well, didn't you? Uh, that, yeah, yeah. That- no, we, we did and we also... Uh, look, we did everything together. We were just thick as thieves and... Yeah. He was um, around at our place all the time. And one of his little party tricks was um, actually when you were born, Yeah. when you were very little, you, you were sort of a hyper-animated baby. Was I? Only 24 hours a day. <laughs> okay. And you used to shake your cot. Right. You used to be, you were, you were, you know, you were very sort of vigilant and didn't really like sleeping. Isn't it the parents' job to shake the cot? If anything, I was saving you work, surely. Mm, but you used to it used to be a big effort to get you to sort of calm down. And then when you were calm and just sort of lying there all chilled, Julian would, um, he'd, one of his tricks was to pick you up and throw you up into the air really high. Uh-huh. Like I'm talking a metre away from the, the outstretch of his arms. And you were literally in free fall and you had your arms out and you loved it. And you were so excited and your eyes would be bulging. And he'd do it a few times and then he'd hand you back to us. And, of course, he'd then go. And what we had was a, a child, i.e. you, who was so wound up and sort of pumping with adrenaline because she'd been sort of flying through the air. And that was, he always did it, which was quite funny. And you loved it. And anyway, that's, that's a, an aside. But... You know, the role of good guy, bad guy, I think these things just happen naturally um, in the early years when you're interrogating um, a prisoner in relation to... I mean, the word interrogating sounds a little bit sort of, you know, heavy. But it's, a, it's, 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 it's like interview is what you mean, interview, right? Interview, when you're interviewing. So with a, with a good cop, bad cop thing, I assume what you're trying to do is present a sort of 
a frightening a frightening thing bearing down on the person and you as the good cop are providing a way out and of course the way out the way to avoid whatever implied punishment there is from the bad cop is to go down the door being left open figuratively by the good cop mm. right and so you're mm. basically going look if you don't want that I'll give you this, right? So there are two options. Why not take the good one? Mm. I'm assuming that doesn't always work. No. I mean, if you if you get a hard bastard in the room, that's just not going to fly. I have witnessed um, really, really. I mean, when we say interrogation and and like interviewing, we're not talking minor offences, right? We're talking serious stuff mm-hmm. um, that invariably will lead to at least a jail term, um, and. You know, you want to get as much information from the prisoner, and they are a prisoner, in that their liberties have been taken away. They're not free to go home. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes during a record of interview, they may even be handcuffed. And we didn't have video monitors. We didn't have recording devices. It was just um, one of us would be at the typewriter, and you'd be, I'd ask a question, so your colleague would be typing. Yeah. And it was sort of a he said, they said, he said, they said, and you go on and on and on. And the thing yeah. about interrogating um, prisoners is that we had all the time in the world. So if you needed, and this is going to sound a little bit sort of hyper extreme, but let's hypothetically say that you felt it would take days and days. And, it's, and it, wears, it wears everyone down. I mean, it just doesn't wear the prisoner down. It wears the police down. Yeah. And it's demanding. And, um, you know, back in the day, I used to smoke. And, um, you know, I'd be smoking and I'd be getting frustrated and trying to work all the different angles. And and my colleague, Julian, he he just slipped into the role of, of being the tough guy, which would involve, um, you know, threats. Of, of sometimes violence or look lot, lots and lots of techniques. Um, whereas I, firstly, I, I, I accepted that that was a method, but I didn't agree with it. Yeah. I didn't like it. It wasn't my style. My style was to appeal to their basic human instinct and their emotions. And I would draw on their family history, their childhood, you know, had it been traumatic? Quite often it had been traumatic, but in this particular case that we're about to go into, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but we shall we shall come to that. How do people from, and this is going to sound so naive, but I guess the assumption is if somebody is committing crimes, they've had some sort of trauma visited upon them at some point. But the thing about this specific case... It seems like the the person doing the crime kind of had everything. I mean, do you think it was boredom? You know what? We can dive into the motives later on because we're actually going to get to that. But mm, give me one mm. second. Um, but the actual case we're dealing with uh, was, I believe, written about in news.com.au when the book first came out. And I refer to it there as the case of the cardigan and the jewelry penis. And that was kind of the, the working title for this chapter um, for reasons that will become apparent. First of all, just quickly, can I? Get, I'm going to read you my description of Julian, and I want you to tell me how accurate you think this is. Mm. Okay. While John was tall and lanky, Julian was short and built like, if not a brick shit house, something brick shit house ish. He was extremely fit, if a little on the short side. 
He was handsome with dark hair, dark eyes, and blindingly white teeth. His uniform was always immaculate, and he jiggled his left leg whenever he was standing still, which wasn't very often. He looked like he was born to be a police officer, and he warmed to John very quickly. Do you think that's accurate? The jiggling of the leg, I don't know where you got that from, so Uh. (laughs) it's it's interesting. Uh. Um, But he and I were similar in height. Okay. He was a little bit shorter than me. And you're and he six, was a, he was I'm six, six foot, foot maybe six, six foot. one. Yeah. But he uh he was undeniably um he's a very good looking bloke. Um he I think he could have easily modelled, that's my opinion. And um, you know, the, the girls really loved him, um and I'm sure a lot of blokes kind of liked him too, and also uh in some later chapters, we'll get to find out just how much people did love him. I'm going to kick this off with a paragraph from this chapter. After some friendly small talk in the station, the two were on the road. It was around 11am and it was sunny. That morning, there'd been a rash of break and enters happening all over North Sydney. First 7am, then 7.30, then 8. Someone was flitting around the suburbs and removing people's valuables with remarkable proficiency. By lunchtime, the two young officers had spent plenty of time lamenting the lack of real police work thrown their way and were getting wound up by this ongoing real-time narrative of burglaries in their area. And then the radio put out a call for assistance. The biggest break and enter yet had just taken place and it was less than a minute from their current location. So you're on shift and you two, as you mentioned, had kind of established this dynamic of, look, we want we want work. We want big cases. We want... You know, you want the kind of juicy stuff, right? Mm. Uh, now, the other day, there was a crime that took place outside our window. Tegan and I live in the first floor apartment. And there was a, you know, like an altercation, basically. This guy had stolen a Deliveroo driver's bike. And then someone else, a civilian, had run up and basically whacked the guy off the bike. This guy who'd stolen the bike was handcuffed and was insisting that the person who'd kind of stepped in to save the the, the, the delivery bike guy... Um, the criminal was saying he had a knife and the cops were like, he didn't, he didn't have a knife. Anyway, after a while, multiple police cars started showing up and then fucking highway patrol showed up. Now, you mentioned to me that occasionally what these cops will do is they'll be bored on shift and they'll hear a call for something juicy and they'll just rock up, right? Mm. Um, now, I, I kept thinking about you and Julian when I was watching this happen and I was thinking if I was a young cop and wanted to show initiative and I was in the area, I might answer the call and go and try and kind of dig as deep as I could. Obviously, does that does that sound right to you? Is that kind of what you guys were doing? You were looking for some way to show initiative at this point? Oh, definitely. Yep. And we were both very intuitive. We were mm. smart, street smart. Um, and look, you know, good policing is a matter of, of being very observant. Mm. And dare I say it, um, sometimes... See, when, when, a, when a big job, like a big crime happens, let's take an armed robbery, yeah. the objective of the offenders is to get as far away from the crime scene as possible, as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, at a good armed robbery with a good crew, within 500 metres, they will have another car and then maybe another kilometre away in a car park, they might have another car. Mm-hmm. If they're wearing disguises, they may get rid of those disguises, put on new disguises. I mean, it's really... And these, these, these crimes, particularly where you're talking very large sums of cash, are very, very well thought out. It's not often these crimes are opportunistic crimes. 
Now, on this particular day, we knew that there was a criminal. We didn't know how many, but I guess you'd assume one or two. Mm. And this person really knew his stuff. And by that, but so by that you mean, if you go into a house, um, first of all, daylight robbery is it is it more common to kind of get someone robbing your house during oh, the day? Than it- yeah, very very common. Back in back in the eighties, it was there were so many break-ins per shift. Yeah, I would I would say on average in North Sydney, Mossman, there would have been at least I'd say ten to twenty a day. Jesus Christ! Enters. There could be thirty. And- there could be fifty. Here's here's the thing that strikes me, Dad. Um, you as a police officer would get a call and you would go to the house, you would take the report and you would maybe write down what had gone missing, right? Maybe um, maybe dust for prints, maybe ask people if they'd seen anything suspicious, but basically you're kind of, the crime's happened, you know? It's like I said, most police work is clean up, mm. but if it's a string of jewellery thefts, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm assuming at this point yourself and Julian are going, shit, what if we what if we catch him before the next one? Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, look, this this day was in terms of if you if you get a lot of uh ex-police together mm. or serving police from anywhere in the world, yeah, anywhere on the planet, you get them all together and you talk to them about how they would describe one of their greatest arrests ever. Yeah. This is definitely up there. And um, it was just being in the right place at the right time and then thinking opposite to what everyone else was thinking in that when we rocked up, bearing in mind, Paul, that back in the 1980s, general duties police did not attend break-and-enters. They were only ever handled by detectives. Now, why is that? Is that because of the fingerprints thing I mentioned before? No, no. Look, the fingerprints is down. That ha- that happens later. Okay. The fingerprint guys generally don't go to the job on the day unless they happen to be in the area. Mm-hmm. They've already got a, a shitload of jobs to do. I mean, when yeah. I was in fingerprints, I'd be doing 10 to 20 jobs per day looking for latent prints at various scenes of crimes. Okay. So you go, you would get a call, go to a place, take a print, leave. Um, yeah, you dust dust for prints. You'd, you'd yeah. always go and try and figure out where they'd broken in. So you'd try yeah. to get, you know, like on a, on a windowsill, on, on mm-hmm. glass, how they'd come in, what they'd touched. You have to kind of get into the mind of the crim and then go through the process of now, if I was a crim, if I'm committing like this rape or this murder or this arson or this mm-hmm. whatever, how would I... What would I be doing inside the house? And it's really interesting. My assumption would be if I was dealing with a um, with a jewel thief, right? If someone was actually robbing robbing places, and as you said, they knew what they were looking for, right? They really mm. knew their stuff. I think was your phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In which case, surely that kind of person would wear fucking gloves, right? Nah, I mean, nah. no, no. Nah. Well, the, they don't generally. They don't wear gloves because yeah. if they get caught randomly. With gloves, they're fucked. And what happens if they don't have any gear on them? They've just got gloves. The police are going to go, hang on a sec. You, No, they, that glove thing, it's, you know, and gloves, if you're a really high-level jewel thief and you're wearing mm. gloves, that's going to affect the way you handle and relate to the jewellery. Okay? Try, try and go through um, some beautiful jewels 
with gloves on. I um, need some beautiful jewels. Do you have any jewels I can handle? <laughs> I do, but none, none that you can touch. And um, and then, of course, there's there's the case, and there have been a, a number of documented cases of crims that have worn Ansel or a similar rubber glove. They've disposed of the gloves yeah. and left their latent prints on the on inside, the inside of, the gloves, of the gloves, which is fascinating. <laughs> That's wild. So no, it's what you would so what you would do is okay. If you were going to take a latent print from the inside of a rubber glove, how would you do that? Well, you just you just you just cut them open, and what then and then well, just basically split them in two, yeah, and then then flip them over to reveal the insides. But here's the thing about rubber gloves as well. Rubber mm. gloves, you you if you if anyone would care to look at some rubber gloves, the ones they might use for washing up, for example, have a good look at the gloves, and you will note that there are there are. There are sort of micro dimples and some of them have got sort of raised areas. Mm. It's good enough in court, as as has as it, as is in case law, where they've accepted the evidence of a fingerprint expert, funnily enough, or a crime scene investigator where they've taken the prints of the actual glove, not the print. Because the gloves have unique characteristics like tire impressions. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So people have been convicted if they're found with a pair of gloves on them. They can then ink up the glove and get a an image of that, then photograph it, then compare that to the glove impressions left at the scene of the crime. Crazy. So the the whole thing about wearing gloves can can really ruin you as well. 
because no two sets of gloves are the same. So what's your best bet uh, for not leaving anything that can trace back to you on the don't, side of a... Don't do break and enters. I mean, Stay <laughs> at home, say... get a real job. <laughs> get a hobby, yeah. Let's say I have to do it, though. Let's say let's say it's, you know, like... Well, there are, a, there are techniques you can use, but I don't yeah. particularly want to go into those on on this podcast. How would you um, rate, uh, just quickly, how would you rate Netflix's... Um, series Lupin, the French series with MRC as the... Have you seen Lupin yet? No. Holy shit. It's a fucking masterclass. It's it's basically just, oh, dad, it's made for you. Okay, this, cool. This is, a, this is a sidebar. It's basically about a, uh, like a thief, like a master thief. Um, and I guess the thing about theft is it's not a victimless crime, but when it's done a certain way, no one gets physically hurt. So there is a certain appeal to it because it's... You know what I mean? It kind of evokes a Robin Hood-esque vibe. When you and Julian were kind of cruising around trying to cut this person off at the pass, uh, were you excited? Were you hopeful? And can you, talk, can you talk us through what it was like when you actually... Well, just tell us what happened next. I don't want to spoil anything for people, but mm. what happened next on this day? Well, I remember the house and I still to this day drive past the house. Um, it was kind of the back way from through Cremorne, the back of Cremorne towards Kirribilli and sort of making your way onto the Harbour Bridge. What street was it on? Do you remember? Um, it's called Bannerman Street. Okay. Do we have any, if, we have any, if we have any listeners on Bannerman Street. Um, mm, and it was in a beautiful uh, house. Um, uh-huh. Look, it's a very established and it's a very affluent area. And that's mm-hmm. the thing. And I know we've discussed this many times before, Paul, but if you're going to do a break in and steal, why on earth wouldn't you break into a beautiful home? Why would you go to a sad, poor suburb in some godforsaken part of the, the city where you just know that if you broke into that house, you'd feel so sorry for the occupants, you may well leave them a food hamper? You with me? Yes, because if you are the taking crime, some... You know, the break, in, the break enter and steal, you break mm. into a house, you steal... Um, a twenty dollar TV. Mm-hmm. You still you you get caught. You're still up shit creek without a paddle. Yeah. Um. So why not go into a salubrious suburb? The occupants are going to own some really beautiful stuff. As a thief, what you're looking for, I assume, is minimum input, maximum output. Right. Mm-hmm. You go into a house as as effortlessly as possible. Take as little as possible that is worth as much as you can get for okay, it. Okay, great, and, brilliant. And then get it to a, and then get it to a fence, Correct. and then just and then maybe don't steal anything for a while. I yeah, assume yeah. that's okay. Yeah, love it. Whereas the lower the lower tier thieves break into houses in very occupied areas take as much stuff as they can. I mean, you wouldn't see anyone pull up in a fucking U-Haul, right? You are looking... Something that you can put in your pockets, I assume, is what um, you're after. Yeah, Yes and no, Paul. I actually, this is where this guy becomes very interesting, the offender, okay. because he he didn't do what a lot of crims back then would do, is they'd, they'd get a, a suitcase uh-huh. or a briefcase. They'd, yep. they'd open it up on the bed. That's the very first thing they do. And then they just rummage and take basically silver, um, you know, just stuff that they think's valuable but they're not doing it with with great knowledge but this particular person Mm -hmm. as the story will unfold he had a level of knowledge in terms of jewelry expertise that was extraordinary yeah and the more i've learned about antiques and and fine art since that day 
because um, you know we ended up having two antique shops, and you know I, I I became a valuer of fine art. So I really do, in hindsight, look back on this particular person with mm. I I I'm kind of almost tempted to say with with a degree of um, admiration. Right, which sounds a bit odd from to, for a police officer to say that, but but there's no doubt about it that police serving in their careers may have met people that they deep down thought you know they might have done some pretty bad shit but i admire the way that they did it i admire the way they used their knowledge yeah to enable them to be very good at what they did and this particular person was very good but so julian and i there was a flurry of activity there were police cars from asshole to breakfast they were the area was pumping and then julian and i we sat back we looked at the scene and we saw a particular person and he was walking back towards the scene of the crime mm-hmm. and this Which, is on this uh, this is on this street in cremorne right this on is- this street and and yeah. and that struck Julian and myself as as really interesting, right? Smart, clever, um, wearing a cardigan, con- wearing a cardigan, and also yeah. a contrarian maneuver, one that you'd normally not expect. Although we we also know that sometimes, particularly with arson, the offender mm-hmm. quite often comes back to see the flurry of activity and and with arson derives often a very strong sexual sense of gratification. Well, by that rationale, what is the payoff for a jewel thief to come back to the scene of the crime? What is what is the possible payoff? Surely it's not the same as the arson, right? No, definitely not. In this particular case, yep. if he had have walked away from the scene of the crime mm-hmm. where there were police cars on the prowl, sort of crawling around all the, the streets close by. Uh-huh. It's a residential, fairly quiet neighbourhood. A lone male person walking by themselves yeah. would definitely arouse suspicion. But if you want to avoid suspicion, you've just committed a major break in and steal together with numerous break-and-inners prior to that, then if you're hanging around, milling around a very frenzied, like a beehive, yeah, you are going to be far less noticeable. So the streets of the suburb during the day are very quiet. Yep. What the smart place to go is to be... Because, mil- yeah, if you... <laughs> if you aren't paying attention to the interesting thing in the street, you're suspicious. So what he's done is gone, look, there's just too many cop cars and not enough people. They're going to stop me. So I need to just be in amongst the crowd. Excellent. So what was it about this person's body language, behavior, um, specifically, if you can recall, that Mm. actually made you think we should probably talk to this guy? He was um, relatively well-dressed, longish hair, Mm -hmm. but not unkempt. He was, you know, he walked with with a stride and with purpose. And um, he kind of looked as though he was going somewhere, but kind of didn't really know where he was going. 
Right. So he was trying to sort of negotiate a small area and give the illusion that he was actually sort of there for purpose. Right. But Julian and I, we we felt that this guy was worth chatting to. And then he started to walk away. I mean, at some point he would had to have started to leave that area. He couldn't hang around there for, for just forever because the crime scene begins to dissipate. Police cars start to move away. They start to extend the search sort of further and further afield yeah. in ever sort of outward radiating circles, which is just good policing. And, uh, you know, we just thought that something... I mean, collectively, we thought that something was slightly amiss. But, look, it's, it, we were profiling. We were sort of using our gut feeling... Um, which I've always said is, is, you know, good policing. Yeah. Um, and we pulled over and he was just sort of, we pulled ahead of him and we realised that he was coming in our direction. And so Julian and I got out of the car and we, we just approached him and he, he was fantastic, this guy. He was, he was super cool. There was not a drama at all. And we're chatting away and just sort of having a bit of a light conversation and then... I looked down, and he had had what appeared to be an erection. Uh, he had a massive heart on. Well, you did say Julian was very attractive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought, um, obviously, I thought that I was, the, you know, the more attractive. Oh, and you took the compliment for yourself. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought, wow, this guy's, you know, he's 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 got a massive boner, and he's obviously, <laughs> you know, very excited to be around. Because some people are like that around, you know, police cars and police right. people and all that. So, um, but obviously, look, let's 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 be real. We just thought, wow, this is this is slightly odd. But he was really, really, he was super polite. He was well educated. Tumescent. He, he was, I would say, erudite and charming. And he obviously felt that if he just went along with whatever our requests were, he'd mm-hmm. be sweet. And we said to him, we didn't arrest him. We just said, look, would you mind coming along? You know. Back to the police station. Now, in the book, you say we went back to North Sydney, but we actually went to Mossman, mm-hmm. which is a very quiet station. We just felt that uh, Mossman Police Station was a very, very quiet uh, environment for us mm-hmm. to... If, if our hunch was right, we were on the cusp of a of a major, major arrest. I guess and what I'm asking... I guess what I'm asking, Dad, is uh, was this within your jurisdiction? Oh, I mean, 100%. Really? Oh, God, yeah. Like, shit, yeah. This was, it, yeah. It definitely, fall, it definitely falls under the purview of you know showing initiative, though. I mean, oh this god, was yeah. A, I mean, okay, yeah. Look, look, what was about to unfold was was life changing for, for for both of us because mm. it must also be said, Paul, that I had applied. In fact, Julian and I had been approached by the head of the detectives at North Sydney because we'd been making some really, really good arrests. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever we worked together, and it was pretty apparent that we were... I, I would describe us um, almost as the dynamic duo. Uh, we were just... We were on fire. Every time we worked together, we were just... It, and it was fantastic. We, we we were getting so sort of at good at what we were doing, and, and the detectives recognised that, and, and we were approached, and they said, look, you might like to put an application in to do A-list training, which is sort of basic detective training. And... Um, that was a great honour, and, a, and a, it was a, it was probably the biggest honour that I ever had in the 
New South Wales Police Force was to be invited because most people apply and yeah. a lot of people get knocked back. But they could clearly see that we, we, we were good and um, and based on that, uh, Julian and I took the guy back to Mossman Police Station and Mossman Police Station back then was basically a sort of a late Victorian Edwardian house yeah. in one of the most beautiful suburbs um, in Australia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, leafy, street, quiet, beautiful. And... Um, we took the uh, the offender, or the suspect, I guess I should say, yeah. up into the police station. I went in and spoke to the station sergeant and explained, you know, what we felt we had and what... Because he'd been listening on the radio. Everyone in 6th Division, in fact, everyone in uh, the district and and surrounding areas knew that there, there was a... A break and a merchant, we used to call him. Isn't that funny? Break and a merchant, you know, just 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 working hard and uh, and 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 getting a lot of gear, and um, but being very particular, very uh, very very knowledgeable, as it turns out, right about his his trade. So we get the guy into one of the interrogation rooms, uh, and we sat him down. We started chatting and we found out that his father owned a jewellery store in the city in a very, very famous um, arcade. So that checks the knowledge box. Mm. And he also, he lived, uh, this guy, he lived in um, the eastern suburbs. So he was very well educated. He came from an affluent family. Some people might say he wanted for nothing. Some people might say as is my hypothesis, mm-hmm. that he just did this for fun and was very, very good at it and would have made a very, very, very handsome living out of it. He would have been making uh, many, many thousands of dollars a week or okay. even, a, even a day. And that's his, that's, that was his chosen profession. But he had all the... Um, Everything was pointing to someone, but we we didn't know at this stage that he was the he was the guy. But he still hadn't he still had an erection. He still had a bulging mass in in his pants. At this point, he's probably had it for about forty five minutes. So you yeah. were and I'm clearly thinking, getting you know yeah. You're not that good. You're not that good looking. So. Nah, you know. So uh, it was at that point, and I just can't believe this guy. He's just. But we were nice. I mean, up to that point. Julian was was we were both kind of being really nice, mm-hmm. and he was he was just a genuinely nice bloke. I mean, you don't you can be a crim and be a really nice person, yeah, or you can be an asshole. But you can be, I guess it, you can be a non-criminal and be a, a dickhead. So hundred percent, hundred percent. And um, it was at that point that we got him to stand up, and the door was was closed. Yeah, and it was as though he'd been caught. And he just thought the game's up, and he started to pull his pants down, and inside his underpants um, were the crown jewels, literally. And he began to take out these magnificent, um, warm, warm rings, <laughs> um, including his own ring, which by then was puckered and sweating, probably. Right. Yep. That's that's I'm imagining that. 
Because um, I, if with I you, yeah. well, if I had been in that situation, I would have been feeling pretty bad and nervous and thinking, "Shit, you know, this is my life's going down down the gurgler." Because at this point, it's just a bunch of smelly rocks being placed awkwardly on a table in a yeah. small room. Yeah, and, okay. and and there were quite a few of them, and there was one standout. Uh, ring. Stand up, stand, stand out, stand out <laughs> ring that I that I to this day mm-hmm. uh, regarded as a privilege to have seen. So I guess um, this guy got fingered by you guys in a small room. Hmm. Yep. Another? Is that a joke or? Well, if you get fingered, you get caught. I'm just cool, trying to make. Cool. Sorry, I thought you meant something else. But um, now, the 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 great thing about this story, Paul, uh-huh. is that we. We just couldn't believe the stuff. And then we began to realise yeah. that what we had here was what I would say was a master breaking in a merchant. Very knowledgeable, very good at his trade. Yeah. But he had far, far more stuff than from that one or two break and enters. And we knew there'd been quite a few break and enters. Mm. We spoke to the sergeant. And we should have called the detectives at that stage. Um, but the sergeant gave us, he cut us a bit of slack. And we did something then that was fairly, I guess, unorthodox, particularly for General Judy's police. Yeah. We then formally arrested him and we handcuffed him. And then somehow or other, he agreed, because we were really nice. I mean, he was a, just a little bit older than us. So I'm in my kind of early to mid-twenties. He would have been late twenties, but he was a nice guy. Mm. And we were all just chatting away famously. And he, he well, I guess, was lulled into a sense of feeling that he felt comfortable and safe with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we certainly weren't going to take him into a back room and beat the shit out of him, which was not that uncommon back in the day. But we managed to, and this is kind of really kind of pushing the envelope a yeah. little bit, but... We said to him, how would you like to show us all the places you've broken into today? And he agreed. And we took him back out on the street. We drove him round and he pointed to all the houses. And some of the houses, the police certainly didn't know and the occupants didn't know because the occupants weren't at home. They would not have known they'd been broken into until they got home. And sometimes with good crims, good thieves, mm. sometimes you don't know you've been broken into for weeks or months because they find things in your house in that are sort of secreted in, you know, and, and, and it might not be until the gentleman or the lady of the house is going out to the opera, for example, and she wants to choose a particularly beautiful piece of jewellery and she goes, hang on a sec, and that could yeah. be six months later. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, it's incredible. So we were compiling this this fantastic list and, and Julian and I were very aware of the kudos that this whole case would get us. This was a big, big event. It was a major thing for us. It was a major and you had thing. Him, and you had him writing down yeah. and well, confessing to us. Yeah. yeah, we did a drive, a drive around. And it was really surreal. And I've got to be very honest with you here. That we actually drove past the scene of the crime where there were still police milling around and driving around and we hadn't told VKG, we'd said nothing. So in effect, police were actually kind of 
actually looking for someone that we had in the car with us. That's bananas, Dad. Yeah. And that's, that's a bit, crazy. bit weird, but I think it's kind of cool. And, yeah. you know, I, I was not unhappy with what we were doing. And I realized that we were on the cusp of something fantastic. Yeah. So we eventually went back to Mossman Police Station and we literally had, I'll never forget it, we set out on this big old-fashioned desk because the furniture was sort of almost antique mm-hmm. at the station. And it was a quiet room. There was blue carpet, beautiful old-fashioned windows. There was a fan above, high ceilings, probably 16-foot ceilings. Mm-hmm. It was just a beautiful, beautiful environment. He's sitting there. He's calm. We're calm. We got all the different sort of groups of jewellery. He separated all the jewellery into piles we then wrote the addresses and tied all the addresses together with the actual items watertight it sounds watertight it was phenomenal it was phenomenal and then he said to us look um we're on the verge of getting uh, a confession yeah an admission to all these break and enters mm-hmm. and the value of the jewelry was that uh, was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars so it meant jail time and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And everything was going really well. And he kind of, he said, look, um, would I be able to call my father and... The guy who owns the jewellery store, right? Yeah, so yeah, presumably yeah. quite a moneyed up guy. Yeah, yeah. And he said, look, would I be able to call my dad and just let him know what's happening? And we said, well, soon, but not quite. We just want this totally airtight. Yeah. And then the sergeant knocked on the door and he came in and he said to Julian and myself, he said, look, guys, I'm afraid. Because he, he looked down at the table and he saw all the jewellery and his his eyes were literally popping out of his eye sockets because he realised the enormity. And the first thing he said to us was, guys, you, you this is way beyond you. You've got to call the detectives in. And uh, we we felt, I mean, we understood, but we felt a little bit anxious because you're potentially teeing something up for these guys. Well, we've done you... all the groundwork. Yeah, yeah, of course. And um, <clears throat> and we'd said no to a uh, to a uh, phone call, right? To his dad, and to, until we were just one hundred percent sure that everything was totally airtight. Mm-hmm. Bearing in mind, um, Julian and I had our application in for A list detectives, and that was really, really exciting. That was going to change my. That was going to be the direction of my my career and you know as you'll hear in the next few minutes my my life took a uh a course that i hadn't expected um and and i'll tell you why in a sec but i remember two detectives came over from north sydney one of the detectives he may have been in training and he was younger than me and he was a really nice bloke and he actually, you're not going to believe this, you may or may not know this, but he actually went on to become a priest at, St. at, at the Manly Seminary up on the hill. Really? Which I think is extraordinary. Just quickly, this is where the, ch- the chapter ends when the, when the detectives arrive. So Really? Yeah, remember? Shit. It, it literally ends as they come in, as you're about to get the confession. And that's the, then we can't talk about it until next week. We can't talk about the rest because that's oh, where the chapter ends. Well, that's, that's, so that's mate, I'm glad you stopped me because it's a it's a cliffhanger, is what it is. I, I love cliffhangers. 
It's a classic cliffhanger. God damn, what a great story. And I can't, I mean, I know how it pans out because, you know, um, I wrote the book about it. But listeners might not actually know. And there's a lot of stuff here that keeps coming out that wasn't in the book, which is why I'm so happy we're doing this season, Dad. That's why I think mm. Origins is so much fun because we're getting the story behind the story. Mm. Uh, oh, man, that was thrilling. That was great. It's Paul, just. It's- I I can't believe you've stopped me mid-sentence. I, I'm kind of I feel as though I'm on the starting blocks. I'm about well, to dive into a you know a sprint. But well, here's the thing, Dad. Uh, we are heading to Brisbane um, in like 24 hours. We're actually heading across to Brisbane to do an episode for a private Acast event. This podcast is actually released by uh, a wonderful company called Acast, and they're great. And they are taking us up to Brisbane to you know do a private little shindig. And then on Friday, you'll be able to hear our episode of Loose Ends. We've got some fantastic questions from listeners, some really, really juicy stuff. If you want to send us questions that we can answer on the show, you can head across to facebook.com forward slash loose units. And Dad, I'm just so excited about seeing you in person again. And doing oh, it'll some be unreal. Stuff. Can't oh, wait. In fact, our, our Friday episode of Loose Ends will be recorded in our hotel room in Brisbane. Or potentially maybe in the Brisbane Botanic Gardens. We like mm. getting electric scooters and sort of driving around recklessly. So that we do. That should be a fun trip. Well, Dad, thank you so much for sitting down with us and having a chat. And uh, everyone, I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you on Friday for more Loose Units. Bye. Cheerio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.